And for scripture reading this morning, I'm going to invite Perla to come up. So Ephesians chapter 6, verse 10 to 24. Finally be strong in the Lord and in the strength of his might. Put on the whole armor of God, that you may be able to stand against the schemes of, dev- of the devil. For we do not wrestle against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the cosmic powers of this present darkness, against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly places. Therefore, take up the whole armor of God, that you may be able to withstand in the, de- in the evil day and have done all to stand firm. Stand, therefore, have fastened on the belt of truth, and having put on the breastplate of righteousness, and as shoes for your feet, having put on the readiness given by the gospel of peace. In all circumstances, take up the shield of faith, with which you can extinguish all all the flaming darts of the evil one. And take the helmet of salvation and the sword of the Spirit, with which, eat, which is the word of God, praying at all times in the Spirit, with all prayer and supplication. To that end, keep alert with all perseverance, making supplication for all the saints, and also for me, that words may be given to me in opening of my mouth, boldly to proclaim the mystery of the gospel, for which I am an ambassador in chains, that I may declare it boldly as I ought to speak, so that you may also know how I am and what I am doing. Tychicus, the beloved brother and faithful minister in the Lord, will tell you everything. I have sent him to you for this very purpose, that you may know how we are and that he may encourage your hearts. Peace be the brothers and love with faith from God the Father and the Lord of Jesus Christ. Grace be with all who love our, Je- our Lord Jesus Christ with love incorruptible. Thanks, Perla. So today, we finally reach the end of the book of Ephesians. I don't know about you, but I've really enjoyed our time looking at this book. I might move off to the side a little bit so that you can see the slides more clearly, except for you too, sorry about that. Um, But it's been so incredible looking through this book and seeing God's plan for the entire universe, how he has a plan to set all things right, to reverse the trajectory of things to break down and fall apart and die. And then as if that wasn't exciting enough, Actually, they're on that side. So if I'm over here, then everyone can see. All right. As if that wasn't enough, he then invites us to be part of that plan. He rescues us and saves us so we can join him in what he's doing. And he forms us into this new community of the church so that we can live as his people here on earth. And in a letter writing society, like Paul was living in, in ancient Rome, typically, You'd take whatever was most important in what you wanted to communicate, and you would put that right at the very end of the letter. Because that's when you finish reading the letter, it's the thing freshest on your mind as you walk away, so you can remember it. And Paul, today, we're reaching that point in this letter. What's the, the big thing that Paul wants everyone to remember as they walk away from reading this letter? And what we're going to see is that Paul wants them to remember life is war 
so be ready. Life is war, so be ready. And we'll talk about seeing the battle, knowing the enemy, knowing your goal, and knowing your tactics and tools. But first, let's pray. Father, we thank you for this time that you've given us to look at your word, to go through and study the book of Ephesians and what a blessing that journey has been for us, God. And I pray that you'd be with us today as we reach the end of the book, that you'd be speaking to us and showing us what you want us to to learn about how to live as your people in your world today. I pray that you'd give us ears to hear, that you'd help us to focus and be attentive and to hear what you have to say to us today. In Jesus' name, amen. So first up, see the battle. Now, Paul makes a claim in this passage that I think we have to take a couple minutes to unpack because it, it probably feels shocking, maybe even false to a lot of people in our world, maybe even to some of us here. And I have a little thought experiment I did to come to this conclusion. See, I think if you walked up to any person on the street here in Tongchang and you said to them, there's a war happening right now, they would say, yeah, in Ukraine, everyone knows. But if you were to be like, yeah, that's happening, but there's also a war happening right here on this street right now. They all kind of look at you like you're a little bit crazy, right? Like that's, that's not something that they would expect you to say because people in our world don't tend to see life as a war. There might be certain things that we say, ah, it feels like a battle. Like maybe getting your kids ready for church in the morning feels like a battle. But we tend to see that as more of the exception rather than the rule. Sure, life is going to be hard, but war, isn't that a little excessive? Isn't that a little extreme? But today's passage says life is a war. And unless we see that there's a war going on, unless we understand that and and let that function in our lives as the way we see in the world and operate in the world, the rest of this passage talking about how to fight in that war, it's going to make no sense to us. So is there a war going on? Is life a war? And the answer is yes. Throughout Ephesians, we've been seeing God has this cosmic plan for the entire universe to, in Paul's words, he says, to unite all things in Christ. Now, what that means is God's going to take this natural trajectory of everything in life to to break down and decay and die, and he's going to reverse that. That he's going to make it so that things don't just break down anymore, so that there is no more death, so that the world is exactly the way it was always meant to be, that God is working to make the world exactly the way that he wants it to be, exactly the way it was always meant to be. And if you've got eyes and ears, you know we don't live in that world yet. You can see that there are forces in the world actively fighting against God's good plan to unite all things in Christ. Like, yeah, there are inanimate forces like earthquakes, tsunamis that just cause destruction and break stuff, but it's not just them. There's also forces with will. Forces that that have a choice, that could do something differently and choose to use their power to make choices to make harmful decisions, destructive choices, rather than beneficial and loving ones. So last week we talked about slavery. We didn't get into this detail about slavery during that sermon because we didn't have much time for it. But estimates say, despite the fact that slavery is not legal anywhere in the world today, There are more slaves on earth today than at any time in human history. 
Did you know that? Over 40 million people in our world today, that's according to The Guardian, so fairly reputable source, over 40 million people in our world today live as slaves. People are purchasing and selling other human beings as property. So Paul's been telling us these past few weeks that that God calls us to lay down our lives for one another, to sacrifice for one another. And what we see happening in this slave trade industry is people are not doing that. They're doing the exact opposite. They're taking other people's lives and, and sacrificing them for their own advancement and their own wealth, their own comfort. They're actively fighting against God's plan, working to bring chaos and disorder and destruction to God's good world. And of course, that's not the only thing wrong in the world today. We all know about what's happening in Ukraine, how one country comes in, attacks another country, just causes indiscriminate chaos and destruction throughout their country. I got an email from a ministry in Ukraine this past week. They said that um, a week or two ago, the Russians launched some missiles into a newborn baby wing of a hospital. It's horrible. And that's like big level stuff, but... These things happen on a smaller level in each and every single one of our lives every single day. It's not just out there in the world, it's it's in us too. We say and do things that tear other people down, that cause harm in their lives because we wanna feel better about ourselves. We tell lies and, and cause destruction to protect ourselves. There are forces throughout the world, big and small, out there and in here, working against God's plan, fighting against God's plan. Life is a war. And it's so important for us to recognize that because if we live oblivious to it, if we don't live as if we're living in the middle of a war, we're going to lose because we're not actually going to be fighting. Our only chance of fighting properly in this war and being sure we're on the winning side is to learn to see this war. Once we see the war, next we need to know the enemy. That's one of the first preparations for fighting any, any battle, any war. In, in the art of war, Sun Tzu says, if you know the enemy and you know yourself, your victory will not stand in doubt. You need to know who you're fighting against. And there are lots of people in our world today who who see that life is a war and they go out and they try and identify the enemy and they point their fingers in all the wrong directions. People look to members of certain political parties. People look to uh, followers of certain religions. People who work in certain industries point all the fingers, say they're the enemy. If we can just beat them, the world would be exactly the way it's supposed to be. But there's a problem with doing this. And I'm going to quote Alexander Solzhenitsyn, a, a Russian writer here, because I think he says it best. He says, the line separating good and evil passes not through states, nor between classes, nor between political parties either, but right through every human heart. The human heart, it's a battleground. Every single one of us is torn between the two sides in this war. And Paul wants us to see in this passage, people aren't the enemy, they're the ground that's being fought over in this war. If we identify people as the enemy, we're identifying the wrong enemy. People are not the enemy. When we try to make people the enemy, here's what's gonna happen. We're gonna look at the people God calls us to love and serve and sacrifice for, and we're gonna demonize them we're going to harass them. We're going to tear them down. We're going to do the exact opposite of what God wants us to do for them. 
Anytime we identify people as the main enemy, we're going to treat people wrongly. And Paul wants us to see people are not the enemy in this war. People are the ground that's being fought over. That's what he means in verse 12 when he says, we do not wrestle against flesh and blood. Yes, people can be used by the enemy to carry out the enemy's plans because all of us have this line between good and evil running down our hearts. But people are never the real, deepest, most fundamental enemy. And anytime we look at a person or a group of people and say, they are the bad guys, they are the enemies, they are the ones we need to fight against, we've lost sight of the real war. And that's a dangerous position because we're going to be, again, harming and harassing the people we've been called to love. And we're going to be completely blind and oblivious to the true enemy that we're called to be fighting. So in order to fight properly, we need to identify the enemy properly. And Paul tells us right here in verse 12, who is the enemy? We do not wrestle against flesh and blood, but against the rulers against the authorities, against the cosmic powers over this present darkness, against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly places. Now, again, uh, this is not human. So rulers and authorities are not like governments out there. Rulers and authorities and, and the spiritual forces of evil, the cosmic powers, this is all different ways of describing the same enemy. And that means we can see a few things about our enemies from this passage. One, Our enemy is spiritual, not physical. We cannot see them. We cannot like shoot them with guns or punch them in the face, which means anytime the church tries to fight these spiritual battles by physical means, something has gone very wrong. The fact that the enemy isn't physical, it means we don't fight with the traditional weapons of war. We're going to look at our armor in a little bit about how we do fight against this enemy. But second, not only are these enemies spiritual, they're also powerful. In fact, they are far more powerful than any of us on our own. It says they are rulers, they are authorities, they have power, and they operate in the heavenly places. It doesn't mean they're somewhere up in the sky. We talked earlier in our study of Ephesians about how the heavenly places is this unseen spiritual realm that's happening all around us every day. And the things that happen in this realm impact the things that happen in the physical world. That's where our enemies are operating. They're, they're invisible. We can't see them, but they impact our world. They're incredibly powerful. And not only that, but they are crafty and strategic. Paul says in verse 11, that they have schemes. If you think about how Satan and his forces would try to, to stop you from living for God, what do you expect to happen? Anyone think of persecution? Like, making it illegal for Christians to worship God and, and throwing you in jail or worse if you worship Jesus. You know, that could happen. That's happened many times in human history. But the enemy is smart. He's crafty. He's strategic. He has schemes. He knows that'll get some people, but it's very clearly an attack. And a lot of people are going to be braced for that, ready for that. But you know what's often far more effective at getting people to stop following Jesus than, than straight on persecution? You give someone a new job that they absolutely love, that pays them tons of money, and that gives them no free time to read their Bible, pray, hang out with Christian friends, go to church. You give someone a new boyfriend or girlfriend that's absolutely everything they've ever looked for in a significant other, but who wants to hang out and do fun stuff on Sundays instead of 
go to church. You let the high school kid be invited to the coolest party of the year that's going to go late into the night Saturday so that they just won't have the energy to wake up and go to church on Sunday. With each of these things, you say like, I'll I'll read my Bible tomorrow. I'll go to church next Sunday. This isn't forever. This is just a one-time thing. But slowly the enemy drags it on until it's been so long since you've done these things that normal is now not doing them rather than doing them. That our habits change and draw us away from God. It's just slowly drifting. The enemy is smart. He's crafty. He's strategic. He's got thousands of years of experience studying human nature and learning our weak points so he can exploit them. So we have an enemy who's stronger than us, who's operates and exercises in a realm where we can't see, who's incredibly smart and strategic. Should we just give up now? That's a hard battle to fight, right? Do we have any chance of fighting this enemy? You guys are just quiet today. No, we should not give up. That's, that's not, not a trick question. We should not give up. Because the other thing we see about our enemy in this passage is that he is a defeated enemy. We've already seen in Ephesians, Jesus has authority over all these forces who oppose us, who try to defeat us and tear us down. In Ephesians 1, 20 to 21, it says, when God raised Jesus from the dead, he seated him at his right hand in the heavenly places, that realm where these spiritual forces operate, far above all rule and authority and power and dominion. These spiritual forces, they operate in this unseen, unseen realm, but they've all been conquered by Jesus. They can do nothing beyond what he allows them to do. And not only that, but Jesus gives us authority over them too. See, on our own power, we're weak, but with Jesus, we are so strong. Ephesians chapter two, verse six, it says, when God saves us, he raises us up and seats us in these same heavenly places with Jesus. Jesus has that position of all authority and power, and we're right there with him. He's given us a place of incredible authority and power, not because we're somehow inherently great on our own, but because we're so closely connected with Jesus that his power becomes ours, that his victory over the enemy becomes ours, and his victory is secure which means that if we trust in Jesus, if we align ourselves with him, we are on the winning side of this battle. All we have to do is keep fighting and victory is assured. And that means we don't need to fear this enemy. Even though he's powerful and strong and invisible and smart, we don't need to live in fear. We need to, yes, look out so we don't fall into his traps. We need to remain vigilant about fighting him. But like, think about this. Does God fear the enemy? Again, not a trick question. Does God fear the enemy? No, of course not. That's ridiculous. And God is the one equipping us to fight the enemy with his own armor. So there's no need for us to fear either. The other thing is we don't need to be obsessed with the enemy. Like, yeah, living oblivious to the enemy is is quite dangerous. But there are some people who are like, "We, we can't be oblivious to the enemy. We need to look out for every single possibly thing the enemy could ever be doing and they become obsessed with the enemy. Anytime something goes wrong in life, the devil did it. But that's also incredibly dangerous. See, the New Testament never tells us about the devil and his forces, so we'll live in fear of them, or so we'll be obsessed with looking out for them. It tells us about the devil and his forces for two reasons. One, to remind us they are absolutely, completely defeated. And two, 
to guard us against falling into their temptation and traps. And if we focus too much on the devil, it's going to lead to all sorts of negative consequences for us. We're going to stop focusing on God because our focus is completely on the devil and his forces. And like the Bible teaches in 1 John chapter 3, we become like what we look at. If our focus shifts away from God onto like, what is Satan doing? How is he working? Our focus is all going to be there. We become like what we look at. That's a dangerous thing to be focusing on. Also, if the devil and his forces are responsible anytime something goes wrong in life, that frees us from the responsibility of facing the sin and brokenness inside ourselves. It makes things like confessing our sin or changing our behavior very difficult because it's all his fault, not mine. But the Bible is very clear. We are responsible for our choices. We are responsible for, for bad choices we make. And God calls us to, to pursue change. And if we're so focused on the devil, we're going to lose strength and courage to stand for God because we're going to be so afraid of how powerful and strong the enemy is. Do we have any Lord of the Rings fans here? One? Okay. One and a half. So there's this character in Lord of the Rings called Denethor. If you're not a fan, you probably don't know him. But he is a a king who fought valiantly against the forces of evil for for decades. He's right on the front line of the war, leading this conflict. And he gets this tool, it's called a palantir, a seeing stone, that allows him to see the enemy's communication. And he is excited because he thinks this is the tool that's finally going to give us the victory we've been fighting for for so long because we can see what the enemy is doing. And as the leader of this fight, like, this is going to be so great. But his focus, as he listens to the enemy's communication, it just becomes obsessively aimed at, at looking at the enemy, seeing how big their armies are, seeing how strong their tactics are and how powerful their leader is. And he gets overwhelmed by despair and starts to believe that victory is hopeless and he gives up the fight. See, that's the danger of what can happen when we get so obsessed with focusing on the enemy rather than focusing on our God who has defeated the enemy. It's the exact opposite of what Paul wants us to do here. Yes, we need to know there's an enemy. We need to know enough about how the enemy works that we can fight him. But God doesn't want us obsessing over the enemy. He doesn't want us blaming the enemy anytime things go wrong in life ignoring the enemy and obsessing over the enemy. They're both incredibly dangerous. And again, a big part of why we don't need to fear the enemy or obsess over the enemy is because Jesus equips us to fight the enemy by giving us armor for this fight. And we're going to look at that armor in just a minute after we talk about the goal of the fight, which Paul mentions to us several times in this passage. We see in verse 11 that you may be able to stand. In verse 13, take up the whole armor of God that you may be able to withstand in the evil day and having done all to stand. Verse 14, stand therefore. Are you noticing a common theme here? Yes, hopefully. Wow, you guys are really tired today, aren't you? I don't know about you, but when I think about the goal of war, I think of like capturing cities, going on campaigns and, and conquest, right? Anyone else? That's, that's what you think of when you think of the goal of war, right? But that's not what we find here. God isn't expecting us to be war heroes who, who conquer the enemy city and make huge advantage, advances. He's saying all you and I have to do to be successful in this war is not give up. 
How can that be? Like, how can God be content with us just standing firm when there's so much evil in the world, so many enemies to be overcome? It's because victory doesn't rest on your shoulders or mine. See, when when Jesus died on the cross, he paid the price for your sin and mine, for all the things we've ever done wrong, for all the, the ways that we've disobeyed God's commands. He made a way for you and me to be forgiven for everything we've ever done wrong and put back in a right relationship with God. But this sin, this human disobedience against God, it's actually also the reason for everything else that goes wrong in our world. The Bible tells us that sin brings chaos and death and destruction and decay into God's good world. It's like if you think of a country with an evil king, the whole realm ruled by this king or president or ruler is impacted negatively by the bad choices of that king. Whether it's corruption and bribery and just injustice, whether it's terrible decisions that lead to inflation so everyone loses their wealth, whatever it is, a bad ruler negatively impacts everyone under their rule. And the Bible tells us that when God created the world, he put humanity as the rulers over all creation. Our disobedience of God, our evil, brings chaos and destruction to the entire world that was under our rule. But that means when Jesus pays the price for sin, he pays the price for the entire cosmic rescue to be completed. He pays the price for chaos and destruction and decay and death to be wiped out once for all, for all things to be united in him. See, in this war, there's only one hero. It's Jesus. Jesus is the only one who conquers the enemy's strongman and and binds him. He's the one who takes their strongholds and tears them down. And you and I, we get to just stand there next to him and enjoy all the benefits of being on his side. We don't have to be the heroes. We just have to keep fighting. And it's so important for us to see this because if we don't, we're going to think our job's going to be the hero of this war and we're going to get overwhelmed because we can't do it. All we have to do is stand. And what does it mean to stand? It means to hold on to our faith in Jesus, to keep loving others, to keep being obedient to God's call for us that, that Paul's been unpacking for these past several chapters to experience the intimacy of being in Christ as the language Paul's been using throughout here, knowing we're so closely connected to Jesus that what's true of him is true of us and letting that reality give us confidence and hope, loving Jesus and loving others each day, just standing. And so how do we do that? Well, let's look at knowing our tactics and tools. Paul tells us in verses 10 through 11, finally, be strong in the Lord and in the strength of his might. Put on the whole armor of God that you may be able to stand against the schemes of the devil. Now, something really interesting right here in verse 10, that that command, be strong. It's a passive verb. It's not something we do. It's something that's done to us. So like be strengthened. Who's doing it to us? Well, it's be strong in the Lord. So God is strengthening us for this fight. And then in verse 11, put on the whole armor of God. That's an active command. That's something we do. So notice what's going on here. We have a fight that that we can't do on our own. We need God to strengthen us if we're going to fight properly in this battle. And at the same time, God doesn't strengthen us apart from us putting in effort and energy. You can't rush into the battle on your own apart from God or you're going to fail. You can't sit back and do nothing or you're going to fail. 
God works in us and through us to bring victory as we obediently follow him into the battle. And these, this command to be strong, it's a continuous command. It's not something we do once for all time and then we're set. It's something we need to keep doing throughout the day, every single day. We need to be constantly strengthened by God and through a relationship with him. And as you look at this passage, I have a question for you. If you've been here through the Ephesians series, throughout the, does, it, does something feel weird about this passage? See, throughout the entire second half of Ephesians, Paul's been talking about what does it look like to join God on his rescue mission for the universe? What do we do if we want to live for him today? And then he unpacks two and a half chapters of here's how to have right relationships. And then right here, when we get to the end, to this big culmination, to the the big thing he wants us to walk away with, he says, spiritual armor. It just seems like a change of topic, doesn't it? Going from relationships, 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 armor. Why spend two and a half chapters talking about right relationships when the focus is actually on this armor? Why not just jump ahead straight to the good stuff? It's because actually this armor is all the things he's been talking about all along. The themes that come up in this discussion of the spiritual armor, they're the same themes Paul's been talking about the entire book. It's not a a shifting gear, move over to new content. It's actually just a recap of everything that's come before. There's nothing new that Paul is introducing here that he hasn't already told us about in this letter. And that means since the letter has been so much about living with right relationships, living in community, a big secret of the armor is that it only functions like it's supposed to in community. Have any of you ever studied Roman military tactics? No one. Okay. So if you've studied Roman military tactics, one thing you'll come across is called the phalanx. So they had these huge shields and they would interlock their shields in front, on top. If there are enemies on your sides, you could put them up on the sides over here too. And it protected you on all sides from the enemy. And within that protected place, you could then fight against the enemy. You could march as a unit into the middle of an entire enemy battalion, and you'd be completely safe because you're surrounded on every side by these shields. Nobody in the phalanx needs to worry about protecting their back or their sides or above their heads because the other soldiers around them have those areas covered for them. And Paul, the the armor that he lists here is based on the weapons and armor used by a Roman soldier. Just like with the Roman army, this armor of God, it's meant to be used in the community of the church. It's hard to see this in English, but in the Greek, every single command in this passage is plural. It's not saying you, Eric, put on this armor and use it. It's saying you, Bridge Church, put on this armor and use it together. And when you start looking at the different parts of the armor that he lists here, this makes sense. So the first thing we see in the armor is the belt of truth. We saw in chapter four, verse 25, as Christians, God calls us to speak the truth to one another. Truth is meant to be a relational reality that's true for the followers of Jesus. And yes, the belt of truth is bigger than just speaking the truth to one another because knowing God's truth as it's revealed in the Bible helps us to fight against the lies of the enemy. It protects us from being deceived by them. But it certainly includes speaking the truth to one another in our relationships as well. If we're really so aware 
of God's truth, that it's equipping us to fight against the lies of the enemy, then we should be so in love with that truth that it flows out of us and we speak it to one another and it builds a strong and healthy community. The second piece of armor is called the breastplate of righteousness. And again, Ephesians 4.24, it says the new people God's making us into are made in the image of righteousness, that we reflect the perfection and moral uprightness of God. We do upright behavior. When God saves us, he gives us this legal status of righteous, not guilty, having a right standing before him. And he gives that to us objectively, but then we start to live that out in our day-to-day lives. First and foremost, in the church, in the way we treat one another rightly and fairly. The shoes God gives us for this fight is the readiness given by the gospel of peace. In Ephesians chapter two, verses 11 through 22, Paul tells us not once, not twice, but four times that when God saves us through the gospel, he creates peace, not just between us and God, but between us and every other Christian out there because he draws us all near to God and that draws us all near to one another. A proper understanding of the gospel leads to right relationships, relationships of peace within the church, which equips us to fight the devil. And then we have the shield of faith. We're told in Ephesians 2.8 that Christians are saved by grace through faith, trusting in God. And that in chapter 3.17, we're told Christ dwells in our hearts through faith. That when we trust in God, Jesus comes and lives inside of us. Faith connects us to God but it also connects us to other Christians because we see in chapter four, verse five, all Christians share one faith. And if you're like, Eric, this whole thing about community implications of these, this armor seems like a stretch. Notice what the shield of faith does. It allows us to extinguish all the flaming darts of the evil one. Like if I'm out here fighting with my shield and there's enemies all around me on every side, One shield that I have is not going to extinguish all the darts coming at me from every single side. Or darts means arrows. All the arrows coming from every side. I'm not going to be able to block them with my one shield. It's only when I'm surrounded by other people and their shields on my right and my left and above me and behind me that we can be sure that every arrow is accounted for. We need one another in order to fight properly with the spiritual armor. We need other Christians who have faith that's strong when ours is weak so they can encourage us with their faith and we can keep going. There's a German theologian named Dietrich Bonhoeffer. He says, sometimes the Christ in the heart of my brother is stronger than the Christ in my own heart. Sometimes we get discouraged and weak and we want to give up and just having someone else come alongside us and remind us like God really loves you. God really is the one who's going to be victorious in this fight. It gives us the strength to keep going when we don't have that in ourselves. Faith works best when it works in community to protect us from the enemy's attacks. Next up, the helmet of salvation. We saw in Ephesians 2, salvation is this process where God takes us who are spiritually dead and brings us to life through Jesus. And that salvation is completely a gift. And it's really interesting because the word take, take the helmet of salvation could also be translated receive. Salvation is a gift to be received. If you're here today and you're not a Christian, God is offering you salvation. 
new life in him, forgiveness for everything you've ever done wrong, a chance to be part of his people on earth, a chance to join in his cosmic rescue plan as a gift. And all you have to do is receive it and it's yours. Next up, we have the sword of the spirit, which is the word of God. And if you've been keeping track, this is the only offensive weapon we have in all the armor. Everything else is defensive for protecting us and guarding us. And this is the one thing we have where we can fight back. And the word for word here typically refers to the gospel message. And it's interesting because this specific sword that Paul mentions here, it's a short sword. It's not for long range combat. It's, it's for close personal encounters. So God isn't calling you and me to lob truth bombs at people on social media as our way of fighting for him. He wants us to be personally involved, getting connected with people in their lives firsthand, interacting with people. Yes, we do need to speak gospel truth to one another and the people around us to fight off the enemy, but we don't do that by, by just launching tweets into the metaverse. We do it by getting to know people, by seeing how this truth applies to their lives and speaking it directly to them. And it's the word of the, the sword of the spirit and the spirit equips Christians to love one another. It, it functions best when it's used in community, not all by ourselves. And finally, Paul mentions prayer. And I know he doesn't give it a cool piece of armor to go with it, but prayer is so crucial to the fight. It underlies our use of all the other weapons. We're not properly using any other piece of this armor if we're not using it with prayer. If you want a cool piece of armor that you can associate with prayer, not really armor, but something that they use in the military, one they didn't necessarily have in Paul's day, think of a, a, a radio, a comms unit. If you're in a physical war, your comms unit can be one of your most important pieces of equipment because with it, you can call in an air raid on an enemy position. You can call in a medical evacuation for someone in your team who's injured. You can do far more with this one little radio than you can with all the gear that you could possibly carry on your person. And in the same way, we cannot fight to our full potential in this spiritual war without a properly functioning channel of prayer. So church, we're all living in the middle of a war. It's a spiritual war fought against enemies we can't see, who are powerful and crafty, but if we trust in Jesus, we're on the winning side of this war. And God isn't calling us to be war heroes. He's just calling us to stay in the fight and trust in the true hero to rescue us. And to do that, he's given us tools for the fight. And one of the strongest and most important tools that he's given us is our relationships with one another. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for this book of Ephesians and the things you've taught us through it and the way that it's called us to, to live as your people in a community pray that you'd be working in us to make us into the community you want us to be, that you'd be strengthening our love for one another, that you'd be helping us to speak the truth to one another, to treat one another properly with kindness and laying down our lives for one another. Pray that you give us a proper perspective about this war that we're living in the middle of and help us to stand for you each day. In Jesus' name, amen.